If you would have told me, or if you would have told Dr. Noam Wasserman uh, back in the 1980s uh, that the next time we would see each other would be under these circumstances, uh, me having already completed three and a half decades on the air and uh, he having a, uh, a glorious career in the world of academia, and that we would meet under these circumstances after his uh, appointment, election, however it works, as dean of the Sai Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. I don't know if either of us would have believed it. But yes, folks, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this reunion is long in the making. It has been a long time since I've seen uh, Dr. Noam Wasserman. And yeah, decades, no joke. And he is here this morning so we could discuss his new position uh, that he just uh, took, um, uh, took charge of this year. And uh, we could discuss some of the things happening up at Yeshiva University during this very, very exciting academic year. Dr. Noam Wasserman, Dean of the Sai Sims School of Business at Yeshiva University, welcome to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you so much, Nachum, and uh, good in Chodesh, and very much looking forward to taking three decades worth of catch-up <laughs> and doing it over the next hour. Can we do it? Is it possible in that span of time to really fit in everything that's happened over all these years? I can assure you, no. <laughs> Not a chance, huh? Anyway, it's great to see you. You know, it's funny. Um, everyone has, especially when it comes to uh, uh, a relationship that you know has this very, very long break. So everybody has these one or two memories. And if someone brings up your name to me, you know, one or two things pop into my head. Years in camp, of course, and different episodes. But you know what I think of all the time? <laughs> I don't know if you're going to take this as a compliment or not. And we were just talking about the YU Max, which is you know appropriate for what I'm about to say. I'll never forget in Los Angeles when you were in high school. Uh, many, many years ago, you kept the book, as the expression goes, for the team, for Eula, I assume, right? Yeah. Chief University of Los Angeles. And uh, it, it, you had this impeccable system, this incredible system of keeping the book like no one else. Other people are capable of keeping the rebounds, points, etc. But you had had it down to a science, as the expression would go. And I, I was wondering if, looking back on those years, you'd agree that the, those are some formidable, some formidable activities and and um, and uh, um, uh, you know different things. That's one of the formidable activities that helped shape your career. Let's put it that way. Oh, in some ways, it brought together several of the things that are loves of mine. Uh, you talked about it as the science. It was the computer science side of me. Right. Uh, this was way back in the days when no one was doing computer stuff, and my father, fortunately, had gone and invested in an Apple II Plus way back then that had just sat there collecting dust until one day I decided, let me see what I can do with it. And that ended up being where I would enter the stats in, and I would be able to go and do programs. I would do analyses on it, be able to go and have player ratings and a bunch of other things. I would be able to go and bring a little bit of what's now become a lot of the rage across sports, being right. able to go and have econometrics and sabermetrics and other things like that that you can do there. And so you used to have a bit of fun where the scoreboard that would go up at the end of after each game and the players would go and gather around and start complaining about how they didn't get the rating that they wanted and <laughs> Uh, all the, sorts of other ways the that power we found that you were wielding at that point. The motivational <laughs> po- side of the scoreboard, and there's a little bit of insights also into how when you go and put up some things that are comments on your performance, how people glom onto it, and then how it has some real right. ways in which they go and react and, to and, being able and, to do it. And look today, today anybody from any background with simply a phone can do the same thing and have a major impact without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, I'll remember one night, I'm, the, the night probably that I'm, the same night that I'm referring to out there in Los Angeles, uh, I'm sitting with people who, of course, you know, friends, relatives, many of them relatives of yours, I'm sure. And, uh, and there was a, one specific play 
<clears throat> where there were probably, you know, like eight or ten rebounds on the same play. You know, and, and all of us are looking at each other. Is it possible that Noah got it right? <laughs> is it possible that he was able to follow every one of those and still input everything as the action was going to the other side of the floor? And I would say the the likelihood is you got it right, right? <laughs> uh, oh, the, this also goes back to the, the love of sports piece of it, where when you are so focused and you are engrossed in what is going on, you can come and almost replay what was going on on the court, being able to go and have the sequencing of uh, David Gottlieb just grabbed the rebound, took a shot from a little bit out there, and Steve Hobb went and <laughs> got the, et cetera, being able to right. go and replay that kind of thing. It's actually something so echoing later, like a couple of decades when I'm in class. And when I'm really going and tuning into the students, listening to everything they do, relatively speaking, you can then replay class in your mind to be able to go and have the back and forth, the play-by-play of class, be able to also have the memory that when you're really engrossed in something, that you can replay that. So sort of like a photographic memory? Would you put it in that category? No, 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 no. I definitely am not at that well, drink or anything like that. No, but I'm it's, not saying you specifically, but when one does that, it's sort of like, it sounds like. When you are very engrossed thing. in right. some ways, that is where the, the Shakla Vitaria, the back and forth that is going on when we're engrossing Gemara, and we can right. go and replay uh, Sugi and Shas and the same thing that in our minds and be able to relate to it, the same kind of thing that Rav Soloveitchik used to talk about where he could envision being in sheer with the Rambam walking in right. and the other Gedolim, and then he's like engrossed and being able to go and relate to them. And that's the same kind of thing, that when we get into a zone, when we're so engrossed and following our passions, of we are right there in the middle of the fray, then we can go and be able to also see the same way that we can replay that in our minds. So in addition to passion, the key is focus and concentration. Yeah, and also really caring about what are these people saying, what are right. these people doing. Well, that would be the passion, I guess, that you, know, yeah. you have a real interest in. Dr. Noam Wasserman is here. So quickly, if we can, I mean, just professionally I'm curious, because honestly, and I had learned years ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, I had seen, I think, in a YU publication, frankly, that you had been at Harvard Business School, and I'm saying to myself, of course he is, you know, that type of thing, because I remember you was, you know, such a great student, et cetera, uh, and in that area of, of academia. What happened after high school and college? Like, what path did you take to get, I guess, to Harvard? We'll start with that. Okay, no, sure. So the, grew up in L.A., as you right. mentioned, went to Eula. Uh, after that, it was not as common to go to Eretz Yisrael, but uh, Rosh Yeshiva of Eula, Rosh Shalom Tendler, pushed me in the direction of that and went and spent a year at Shalavim. Uh, then started at University of Pennsylvania as an engineer, so a little bit of that computer science right. seed that had been planted. Uh, along the way, uh, saw that there was also a duel that they had between the engineering school and the, bu- and the business school. So I went and added on the Wharton part of it and ended up getting degrees from both the engineering and the Wharton uh, school within, uh, within Penn. Uh, from then, went down and worked, got a bunch of entrepreneurial experience, uh, was going and I founded something that then grew to 19 people and ran that for three years. What type of company was that? So it was in the early days of software that enables mm. people to be able to collaborate, something called Groupware. Uh, Lotus Notes was what had come out back then. Uh, saw that projects that typically consulting firms were doing for $5 million, $10 million, we could do for a tenth of the cost by going and using Groupware. It also enabled us to go and bring both of the things that I love to do, the business side, being able to go and redesign a process, and then implementing the engineering side. Right. And so being able to do it all together within that kind of a framework was very much an attraction. And that was based where? Where were you living? That was in D.C. Mm-hmm. So the, at that time, my wife uh, was in residency. Uh, she had gone to med school. We got engaged the night before she started med school. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Talk about taking on two big challenges. Huh? <laughs> Talk about trying to really distract her when she should be most focused. Uh, and uh, so she was going doing residency down there. She OBGYN. That was a four-year yeah. uh, residency she was doing. And so we were down in Silver Spring. It ended up being five years that we were down there. But got to see a bunch of firsthand things that have actually become a core 
that I then have spent the last couple of decades in academia going and studying. Didn't realize it at the time how what I was experiencing was going to turn into what was going to be the focus of my life. Uh, but got to see some founding experiences. Then when we went to Harvard, it was thinking it was just Around two years. Around what year was that, Harvard? So that was 1997 that mm-hmm. we went up to there. Um, and we, as a professor? as No, no, no. This is for the MBA program. Uh, I, I am very much an accidental academic. So this, I is, did this not, is as a student? Yeah, this is Harvard. as a student. Uh, having, having that degree already from Wharton, you're still going to Harvard Business School. The uh, For better or for worse, the more that I learned, the more I realized how ignorant I was. Uh, would, you I ended say, up, would you say that today as well? Absolutely. Wow. Uh, every doff of shots reminds <laughs> me about that. Um, the uh, way in which I wanted to go, there were seeds planted very early on of I want to go and get back in, into school, be able to learn even more stuff. I, I spent five years in undergrad, and I still needed to go and learn a lot more when it comes to business and life. Right. And so we were going back. I was going to do my MBA after the handcuffs were off that my wife was done with residency. We were freed up to go and leave uh, we were doing it down, we were living in Silver Spring. Let's go up to Boston for two years. And we figured we'd be down in Silver Spring after that right. again. Uh, along the way, there were a bunch of things that are the direct embodiment of either Yad Hashem or Hashem laughing at the <laughs> grand plans of what we were going to be going and doing. Um, that while I was doing the MBA at Harvard, I ended up doing a summer internship in venture capital. That was another formative experience of being able to go and see founding team after founding team coming through. And that was when I realized that I wasn't the only one who was experiencing a lot of the challenges that I had seen firsthand. And I had a couple of professors who were on me to, to influence me to think about academia. Um, and as I went and put my toes in that water, I figured, oh, this is where I can actually see. I got to experience the intellectual hunt. Absolutely loved how do we go and create new knowledge in the world? How do we go and extend the boundaries of what we know? And so I headed into this 1999. This is gold rush time. This is when right. everyone else was but, heading out to the West Coast right. and... Uh, I had to go and have the difficult conversation with the wife and the parents about why I was not going to do that. And I was going to sentence myself to maybe five or six more years of not getting any kind of pay uh, going into the doctoral program. And so I ended up walking out to the MBA graduation door and in the M- the PhD <laughs> orientation door. And it did take um, five, six years? Uh, no. A uh, little, little less? Yad Hashem, the right. three years to, to wow. do the PhD. Um, but as I was getting into there, I tried to go and understand what are the founding things that academia has learned about? What are the things that... Uh, they've gone and gotten down in terms of lessons and things like that, and I found nothing. I found that there was nothing rigorous that had been done. They didn't even know what right questions to ask. Academia was going and assuming that a startup is just a small version of the Fortune 500, that you just go and scale down the things that we've been learning about CEO compensation. Until the, 10 minutes ago, that's what I thought, but okay. Okay, so <laughs> that's what academia was, an unstated assumption. They were making that you can go and be able to understand founder CEOs by understanding the biggest company CEOs, and it's easier to study biggest companies. So let's just go and do that. And so they didn't even know that some of the things I had experienced and that I had seen were exactly the opposite of the patterns that we go and find within the largest of companies. Okay, I got to stop you for a second. I'm reminding everybody that Dr. Noam Wasserman is here. He is the dean of the Sy Sim School of Business at University. I have a million questions. I'll, I'll let you finish that thought. Sure. Uh, but, but as I let you finish that thought, let me just add, in addition to what I thought 10 minutes ago, wouldn't it make sense that maybe not the large Fortune uh, what's the Fortune 500? <laughs> Fortune 500 company would be the right example to, to bring, you know, Kineged, these startups, but at least the small business world, 
even some might argue the mom and pop shop or what we you know were what we were used to in the 1950s 60s 70s when we saw small companies grow somewhat you know whether a lot or you know somewhat over the years that would be a good comparison am i right about that or not uh it, it's a comparison it's not a perfect one at all because a lot of the dynamics are very different by how do you approach it if what you're trying to do is found a cleaners versus you're trying to go and create something that might have worldwide impact or countrywide impact or something broader um, a bunch of other things when it comes to the who is doing it, who you're going to go and do it with. Small businesses, a lot of them are families coming together to go and do it. And that's actually a very different profile compared to how people go and do the typical startup. So that they... era of startups never before had, or, or I should say never before until that era of startups, was there all those factors combined together. There was never that that you know small mom and pop mentality you know, with with the uh, with the capital that's necessary, with the people that you just said, you know, that need to be associated with it in order to make it a success. That formula never really existed in business beforehand. Uh, no, there's always been uh, those types of companies that were founded. Every large company that you see today Start. was founded. Correct, and started. <laughs> it had to get off company. the ground. It right. had to be started usually by a person or a small team of people who were going into it. So a lot of those same dynamics, a lot of the same ways. So the big difference is the is the international. Uh, influence that one hopes to have with their product? Is that the difference? No. So uh, let, let's just get into sure. like there's a very wide range of those kinds of companies and dynamics and things along those lines. These things are relatively timeless in terms of the things that founders go and face about how do they get companies off the ground? How do they go and involve other people in it in a productive way and things like that? Even the small companies you were talking about, the mom and pops and things like that, had never been rigorously studied. Right. The problem is yeah. they're private they don't want to go and tell everyone about what they're going and doing. And so, A, there was no data on either of those domains. The way that academia, academics are human. This might be surprising, but <laughs> humans like to go where it's a little bit easier to go and do things. And so if you can go and get data on public companies, then you're going to go and do that. But also, they hadn't experienced firsthand how are these different. And so they didn't know how to go and ask those questions. Mm. So I'm going to give you one example, Please. for instance. Uh, within large companies, they've looked at founder at CEO succession when you go and have a replacement sure. of a CEO. It's a big issue. Exactly, big issue, big literature. Right, and uh, and the pro of, and the process is documented usually. Yeah, minutes of meetings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a whole bunch of things right. they can go and get into. They've been able right. to go and study. It's a whole bunch of things in that literature that go and diverge and things like that. But there's one consistent finding that they have, and that is that success as a CEO breeds entrenchment. Like you're not going to get fired if you're going and succeeding as that CEO. Right. And what I had seen both firsthand and also in going and studying founders is that some of the most impressive of the founder CEOs I had run into were the first to get replaced. That essentially the success was breeding their demise, not that success was breeding entrenchment. And so, I mean, sort of the Peter principle, they got to the point where they just couldn't add any more to the company and they needed other people who were more qualified to take them to the next level. That's one of the pieces of right. it. But it's also a bit of a rude awakening for the founders because think about these founders, they have yeah. gone and succeeded. And they've invested their life into it. They, this is their baby. They right. use all sorts of metaphors. Right. They go and draw the comparison to that. And their own family sat there as they were doing all this, Exactly, which is not easy. And they've also succeeded. And that makes you the least receptive to the message of Peter principle, principle is hit. We now need at this next stage of the company a different set of skills, a right. set of things that we have to go and do in terms of, A, what you maybe can't do, but also what you don't want to do. Right. So also think about when you go and bring in an early loyal employee. They were blood, sweat, and tears in the early days for you. 
And now say that person hits Peter Prince. Well, are you going to mm-hmm. go as a founder and be able to say, I need to bring someone in above you or we have to go and replace you or other things like that? No, you're so both on the can and the want. I remember reading about the founder of Men's Warehouse. I think they, they, they actually eased him out of the position, even though he wanted to stick around for this reason, because he refused to make certain changes or pivot the proper way as the years were going on, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and I actually felt bad for the guy. After all, come on, it's his company, you know? But, it would not exist without him. Correct. And so this is where a lot of those dynamics can be make or break for the startup. If it turns out that fearless leader, the centerpiece of the company, the one who has all the loyal employees, is very disillusioned with the fact that they're telling him that for the next stage, you are not the one to go and do it, that can be a bet-the-company transition if it's not done well, and typically it is not. So it's, in your years in Boston, once you get into the classroom, this is what you're teaching. These are the courses you are offering the students, right? Yeah, so early on, there's first doing the academic work to go and right. see, is it true that these are the patterns there? I went and collected data on tens of thousands of founders. Uh, so the first time that we could go and be able to see a whole of bunch of these dynamics. Companies. Uh, but largely it was, so A, it's within the U.S., right. and B, it's within high-potential startups, the two biggest industries for that, so tech and life sciences. And that was just my first foray to be able to go and understand even those industries um, and did a whole bunch of the early work on founder CEO succession. We were just talking about founder compensation. They're actually compensated differently from right. uh, from other people. A bunch of the other dynamics within the team when they're going and splitting the ownership among them. A bunch of things around founder control. When founders go, like with Men's Warehouse, if you right. had fought it and stayed around for longer, there is a major control discount. When the founder stays in control for longer, the company gets hit and is a less valuable company because of it. So all the dynamics around that. Then translate that into the classroom. How do we go and bring this to the next generation of founders so they can be a lot more aware and be able to go and plan in a very different way how they're going to go and do the startup. Then bring it to the outside world with writing the first book. Then bring it to spreading the course across other campuses. And so that was for uh, the first decade of my academic life was what I was doing. And your books do reflect all this work, right? The books you've written are, are on this topic. Yeah, so the, the first one of them was right up the alley of the course that I had gone and developed. It's the early decisions that founders face that tend to come back and bite them. Uh, the ones that come and lead to, rather than heightening the potential of the startup, heightening the risks. So heightening the chance that the team is going to go and blow up rather than be cohesive. That's going to harm growth rather than going and facilitating it. That it's going to lead to their being fired rather than going and having them stay as the the, the parent of this baby as they're going and growing it. Wow, unbelievable. Uh, Dr. Noam Wasserman is here, Dean of the Sysim School of Business. We do have to speak about your role up at Yeshiva University. But on the Jewish topic for a second, before we get to YU, uh, knowing who's listening out there in the audience, is any of this applicable to not-for-profits? Any of this work applicable to, I mean, there are not-for-profits that have been founded, many by one person who had a cause and something in mind, had to address an issue, and they've took it to a certain point. Would you, if you analyze those, do you think there'd be a similarity uh, between those and the startups in the regular business world? Huge similarities. There's some differences, but largely 80 to 90% is very similar. Um, what we're talking about here is human dynamics. And this is going to be crossing boundaries when it comes to nonprofit or for-profit in the States or in Eretz Israel, uh, whatever industry you're going and doing, whether it's life sciences or it's the cleaners. All of these people issues that I tend to go and study are the ones that are going to be crossing all of those things. And it also applies to the founding Menahel of a high school, you know, ah, all the right. ways of founding Rav of a shul, right. a lot of those types of things. I actually got a chance to go and translate that uh, into practice where we were going and founding a new high school in Boston uh, almost a decade ago. And I, they asked me to be the founding chairman of the board for it because Lucky I had studied <laughs> <laughs> what I'd always dreamed of. Uh, 
because I had studied it for a decade of how do you go found something well, do the early decisions that go and structure for scaling? How do you go and make sure that you understand the founder mentality as you're getting something off the ground? And we went and built essentially a school that was taking all the best practices from corporate academia and from corporations and from academia and being able to go and bring them together into the founding of that. And then after we got that off the ground, the big hater in Boston, the Torah Academy, uh, 270 students, uh, 36 years old, asked me to come in and essentially recreate uh, the school when it comes to the board side and things like that. It was going and executing the same things again, where we're going and taking the best practices from what I'd learned within startups and what we see across corporations, import them into there and be able to go and completely reach, sometimes, completely change it. Sometimes when someone's asked to do that, they can make a lot of enemies, frankly. I mean, when changes need to be made, people need to be replaced or you're evaluating that people need to be replaced, some of whom, you know, you might daven next to in shul, frankly, mm-hmm. and are living in your community. And it must, it must be... Very difficult in certain circumstances. No, absolutely. This is where you have to live the balance of being able to go and have people appreciate, A, change is tough, but B, this is why it's necessary. This is why everyone is going to go and gain if we take a little bit of the short-term pain to be able to go and recreate what we have to go and put in place that wasn't there to begin with, but where it's going to set us up for the next decade of being able to succeed. Do all human beings hate change and just some are better at dealing with it than others, or you wouldn't make that drastic a statement? It's, in general, a natural inclination to not be... Some people go and seek out change that they can go and be able to see, and this is part of the entrepreneurial mindset that we go and try to develop in people, um, something right now at YU, we're trying to go and be able to have that driven home in a lot of ways of there's lots of things across all realms of life where taking an entrepreneurial mindset to it will go and benefit. If you're Even if you're working in a large company, being able to bring a lot of the best practices of how founding teams come together, of how they architect each other, how you go and understand your biases, how you go and be able to tune into how you're going to be able to go and get better because you can retrain your mind in some ways, some of the natural reflexes that we have to go and be able to uh, understand first, surface that we understand ourselves a lot better, and then be able to see how we have to go and counter it, some of those other things. So just yesterday I was talking, uh, there's the metaphor that we can go and run with, we're talking about the founding team of the world. So we have Adam and Chava, right. and we have in the Chumash how it goes and describes their relationship. And we have, it's called Azer Konegdo. And right. if we go and look at what Rashi is going and saying, what Azer Konegdo is, he says that if you're a Zoha, then it is an Azer. But if you're not Zoha, then it's going to be a Konegdo. Right. To me, that captures what that natural inclination is that we were just talking about in terms of when you go and get a Konegdo, someone pushing back on you, we recoil from it. That's our natural human instinct that leads to that. I'm not Zoha. So that's why I'm getting this pushback. That's why I'm not going and getting the support, getting the Azer. And that's the descriptive of how we work. I happen to prefer, and this is the entrepreneurial mindset we go and try to develop, the Natsiv says that the Konegdo is actually the Azer. The pushback, the putting on your right. radar, the things you don't know yet. It's a benefit. The, it's a benefit. Right. But we are, don't naturally go and do that. We, we are the, Rashi. We men don't always realize it's a benefit, but it's a benefit. <laughs> yes, it's, especially for the men. Right. Uh, it's human that right. we go and have that. And what we have to go is take our natural Rashi inclination and retrain ourselves to see the Nitziv side of it, of being able to have the muscle to go and welcome and even seek out the pushback. But that's not the natural inclination, as you were saying. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program, heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and NahumSiegel.com, and the NahumSiegel Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Dr. Noam Wasserman is here. He's dean of the Sysim School of Business at Yeshiva University. Before YU, on the Jewish piece for a second, when you were at Penn, uh, you know, I'm curious, I'm very curious, um, why somebody who's in 
um, you know, an Ivy League atmosphere, which you've been your entire academic life, Penn, Harvard, etc., you know, is now at Yeshiva University. Not to put down YU, you, I think this audience knows and the whole world knows no bigger fan of Yeshiva University than I am, and I credit them for my entire career, so there you go. But um, but it's it's fascinating to me because, you know, one might surmise that the most serious academic pursuits in this country are in fact happening in the Ivy League or other institutions. I wouldn't know you've been there. But the Jewish piece, when you were at Penn and, and you were uh, up in Boston, what, was there... I don't know something um, something that kept you connected to the Jewish world as a student. Was there a um, was there I don't know a Hillel or other groups on campus that uh, that that gave you a collegiate and post collegiate experience that included a real good Jewish experience as well? Because I'm trying to understand how you ended up in Washington Heights, and I'm wondering if any of those experiences were part of it. So no, when you're talking about a real good. Experience. I wouldn't definitely put it in that that, that Madrega, that category, right. or anything like that. Um, at Penn, when I first got to Penn, this was back in the late 80s, we had trouble getting a minion in the morning. Which like, they wouldn't believe at Penn today. And, and, well, by the time I left there, it was a little bit of a different thing. Five years later, right. it changed a little bit. But I remember our having to go and call for a number 10 to be able to go and have minion in the morning there. Uh, we would have people who would be trying to learn being able to go and have the, the rock stars at Penn were the guys who were able to go and carve out an hour or two per day to be able to go and learn. Right. Um, when you're talking about the different environment now, like the uh, not to go and put like a crass view of it or anything like that, but the guys who learn for a couple of hours at YU are the bums. <laughs> you know, right. Not enough time. Right. <laughs> yeah, and things like that. Like right. you are going and doing six, seven hours of learning and things like that. Uh, I am able to go and learn at YU now more than I was able to go and learn as an undergrad at Penn. Right. And so there's all sorts of ways in which it is a bit of a different environment when it comes to that. Another one, a little bit of what you're talking about there, I used to go when I was going and teaching at Harvard, and I would have like the last day of the semester, I would be going and doing Gamzala Tova with them. I would be going through the entrepreneurial mindset about how you react to failure, how we go and can learn from Chazal and their Masora about how we can use I'd be talking about Rabbi Akiva. I'd be going and having that be in the classroom there. I'd be going and having, by the end of that discussion, I'd be having a whole bunch of these students walking out of class with Gamzulatova on their lips. Um, I remember getting an email from one of my students who there's actually a... Uh, when I taught at Columbia for like a, a little bit of a summer thing of doing my course there, uh, one of the st- star students there, a guy named Dila Brow, the native in- of India who was there in class, uh, was going and founding a startup. I got an email from him a little bit later giving me a whole bunch of the challenges he'd face on fundraising and things like that. The last line of the email was, but it's all Gamzula Tova. And so this is where I could go and have like a right. way that I can go and carve that out. Early on in the semester, I'd go and bring up the Azer Connecto metaphor for founding teams and how we have to go and be able to broker both of those things of support each other at the right time, but also push back on each other. So I could go and have a little bit of the ways that I would go and inject that in, but it was very much just an island of it in each of those couple of places. Um, at YU, one of the things that I love, it is so inherent in what we are going and doing every day of bringing both of these parts of our lives together, integrating them so they become a much more magical whole. How do we go and bring the morning of the sheer into what we are going and doing in the afternoon, like a lot of these things that we were just talking right. about? But how also with what the students learn in the afternoon about the business world, human dynamics, and things like that, how does that make them better in the morning when they're going through and understanding a bunch of the ins and outs in uh, Baba Metsia, Baba Common, things like that about business and that world, they're going to have a much richer view of that 
by going and having had the secular training, the uh, the business training that they're getting in the afternoon, and how do we go and bring those together? And so See, the know. ooh of the Torah umada, right. how do we go and link the two? See, I, I uh, the, you know, uh, the, 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 one of the reasons for this line of questioning, frankly, is because you know, in the in in the <laughs> in their nirvana in my head about why you're now at YU, I'm wondering if you had the same uh, type of um, uh, of um, epiphany that some of us have that yeshiva, that we must have a strong yeshiva university in our community. I said to you earlier off the air that I'm supporting four different colleges, but you know, the, the, the student, the, the, the child of mine who I believe belongs to yeshiva university is there. And I don't think there's a, a better experience overall for a student who's from a Jewish background in this country than being there. Again, there are other reasons why they may end up on other campuses, their parents and they evaluate the situation, et cetera. And, and you know, that's understood. But I, I just have this, this perception that you understand and, and understood when they approached you the importance of building up uh, their business school program and the importance of it being strong and the importance of it, like its basketball team, attracting people from around the country to be in the Yeshiva University environment. Am I too much of a dreamer? No, no, no. Uh, it's absolutely a big piece of it. Uh, one of the things that had struck me back when I was pre-YU was in a lot of ways where everywhere else that I was going, it was to go and educate the professional, the nine to five of a person. Um, and I remember even coming out of undergrad. So I'd gone to Wharton, one of the best finance schools in the world. Right. I, one of the majors that I had there was finance. And when I graduate and I'm looking at, well, how can I go and invest my wedding money once I got in married and things like that? I didn't know how to go and pick a mutual fund for myself because they had not gone and educated at the 5 p.m. to the 9 a.m. of me all the rest of my life. Right. It was all just when I walk into the office in the morning. And one of the things I love about YU is it's the 24 hours of the person that we're trying to go and educate. All sorts of ways in which it's preparation for life, not just preparation for the professional side of them. And where it's all built in, all of the key things that are going and preparing you for being able to, why you students typically go and start life earlier than other people. They're getting married earlier. They're going and having to support the family sooner right. and things like that. How do we go and have them have a much stronger start, a transition to real life than uh, people who are going and having rude awakenings when they go and graduate college. Now they have to go and figure out a bunch of the landscape. Now they have to understand, how do I go and bring Kovea Itim into my life? And a bunch of them, if they're not going and preparing like at YU, or they have the way to transition in, be able to go and learn how you make it a routine part of your life and be able to go and not have a rude awakening when you come to there. That's also some of the things we're working on right now within the business school that we can get into, but yeah. how it's inherently part of how we are going and looking at the full person. How do we go and educate the values? How do we educate the integrity that you're going to bring to all the things that you're doing in life? How do we bring it to personal relationships? How do we go and have you understand how the Azer Connecto that you learn about in the working world should be when you're walking into home at night, being able to go and bring a lot of those best practices of how you go and create a much stronger family life and being able to go and have the personal relationships benefit from it. Dr. Noam Wasserman is here, and I will give you an opportunity to speak about what's happening up at YU in a moment. But one other point, if you don't mind, and I would hope that you would join my um, uh my crusade when it comes to, to this topic. Your, your colleague... Uh, Interesting Dean, word to use. Yeah, you like program. that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Your colleague, Dean Strauss, has been a, a, a tremendous advocate for this. Uh, President Joel used to visit us a lot at this program and always spoke to us uh, about this topic, and that is that there are a lot of people in the Jewish world, and I'm sure you know this, uh, who don't appreciate the, um, uh, the importance and the enormity of organized academic education. And what I mean by that is there are people who 
Uh, you know, and, and God bless them. There are people who commit a tremendous number of hours a day to Torah study, and based on this conversation, I'm sure everybody understands that both you and I find that to be admirable. But when it comes to secular studies and advancing them in what hopefully will be a career to support their families, uh, they and their parents, unfortunately, do not encourage them to to pursue organized courses. And I would add another piece to this today in 2020. There are organized courses that are uh, not taken as seriously, many of them online, and there are others that if you sit there for two, three months, you will gain a tremendous amount that will become a tremendous foundation for one's work life down the road. So I would hope that you would help me like they did many times just to awaken this community, that even if the segment of the community they're in doesn't always welcome that type of pursuit, they have to understand how priceless it is. No, absolutely. We can go and draw a comparison to, say you have a chemist. Are you going to go and just throw that chemist into a lab and tell that person, go mix some chemicals, and that's how you go and learn what blows up and what works well? <laughs> right. No, we go and say, we've learned over the centuries, over the decades, about what are the best ways to go and be able to do these things. Let's go and arm you with all the best knowledge that we have about things to avoid, things to go and do, and I can be much more productive once you get into the lab. And then we unleash them to go and do it. Unfortunately, within a little bit of the entrepreneurial mindset is a bit of the, let me dive in, let me go and fail a few times on the way to going and learning these things. And we're never going to be able to go and eliminate all of that. But if we can go and take a lot of the things that we've learned about leadership, about personal dynamics, about founding, and be able to go and educate you about the best of that knowledge before we go and then unleash you, it's going to make it a lot better of an experience, A, for you, B, your impact on the world is going to be a lot better. You're going to be able to go and take a lot of the best knowledge and act on it. Hopefully along the way, we'll also build a little bit of your muscles of Mm -hmm. how do I react to the challenges and the setbacks where you'll be a lot better suited to be able to go and learn from them rather than a failure really being a failure. A failure, if you learn from it and you're stronger for it, it becomes a gamzalatova, then it's a lot more productive to be able to go and do it. And so you will have a better life. You'll have a lot more impact on the world if we can go and bring you in just for a few short years Take the way in which we have learned a lot of these lessons the hard way and have you benefit from that stiff tuition bill and then unleash you to go and change the world in a lot more of a productive way. And the most importantly, one's spouse and children will probably benefit the most. And what's more important than that? Uh, Dr. Noam Wasserman, you uh, assumed the position. Uh, when was this? In August? Uh, June? No, it was May. May, uh, May of 2019. I was chomping at the bit to come on board. And so as soon, actually two days before, not as soon as, but <laughs> two days before I handed in my grades for uh, where I was leaving. I was starting at YU. And so I very much was going and let's go and take every minute that we can go and put things in place. If I started in August, we wouldn't be able to go and put in place a lot of the right. things for the first semester. What's the reaction in Boston when someone says they're leaving, you know, the most well-known educational institution on the planet and they're going to Yeshiva University? Uh, well, in some ways, there was a one-line answer that I had to it uh, that this is my chance to go and have a dean-level impact on the most important Jewish university in the country. Wow, I and love that. I love that. As soon as I said that, it was kind of like end of end of conversation <laughs> right. in terms of any of the questions that they right. had about it. And what's the most important thing between May and September? What is the most important thing that you had to do in those months before students started showing up for class? Well, one of the most important things was bef- while they were still around, because I was starting right. just before the end of the semester, listening to them. 
I went the second day that I was there. I did a chat with the dean at the women's campus. I just sent out an email to the students. I'm going to be in a conference room. Come on by, and I would love to hear what's going on for you. Um, I was coming in with a couple of things I knew we wanted to do, but otherwise I was going and absorbing what are all the things that I don't know about yet. The next day I did the same thing at the men's campus, be able to listen. That set a lot of the agenda for what we were going and doing over the summer to be able to go and have in place for the fall. Um, one when, of the other did you, things, when did you meet with the professors? Uh, so the uh, I had come even before. This is one of the benefits mm. that I also had of I ramped up about three months early. Uh, it's kind of funny. The general counsel, Avi Lauer at YU, used to kid about how much more of Noam's free time we have before he starts on the payroll. Uh, and so, That's great. Uh, essentially, I was going, and this is where, so you mentioned uh, Michael Strauss before, right. huge partner of mine during That's the amazing. early days to be able to go and understand the landscape, work together with him. He and the other associate dean there, Avi Giloni, we did weekly sessions during those three months of lead up so I could go and be able to understand a bunch of the landscape that I wasn't, that I was going to have to learn at the last minute before we can right. go and be able to actually act on it. And so that was a key piece of it. Then the listening tour with the students. Um, so, but back to the, those three months of prep on Shushan Purim, we actually happened to come down to my oldest daughter and her family uh, live here in Queens. We came down for Purim there. And then Shushan Purim, I went to YU. And I went and met with the faculty and heard a bit from them about a bunch of the things that they saw as priorities. Also told them about some of the things that I knew we wanted to go and do because I had seen it at Harvard and the other places I'd been about things that every place needs to go and do a bit better. Uh, in particular on the teaching side and being able to go and be a lot more experiential, being able to go and bring practice into the classroom, be able to have the students have... A, day one job readiness, that we can go and have them hit the ground from when they're going. And so what I had done for Harvard for a decade around the world was going and teaching teachers how to teach, be able to go and have them understand the pedagogical side and how we go and bring this practice and experiential, how we go and use exercises in the classroom to have the students walk in the shoes of who they are going to be, how we use case studies to have them be able to project themselves into the case protagonists that we're going and learning how to make decisions through that person's eyes. And so Tuesday was the chat with the dean at the women's campus. Wednesday was chat with the dean at the men's campus. And Thursday was my teaching workshop all day, asking the faculty to all come for that, where we go and learn a bunch of these ways to go and strengthen things within the class. And you told me before the show that you're under the impression that the faculty has adjusted pretty well to you being the new dean, and you're not sure if the students have adjusted as well because it's a different, what I would assume is more rigorous type of program for them right now. Often people would think the opposite, that you know a new dean would be more, much more welcomed by the students and the faculty would feel intimidated by the new guys, so to speak. So, no, the faculty have been tremendous partners in all these things that we've been doing. It's been a delightful thing. I was warned a little bit, and this is where you expect, in some ways, back to the humans. Right. Faculty are human also. <laughs> uh, in terms of change, <laughs> in terms of the ways. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, in terms of change and things like that, there, some people were saying, you know, maybe some of the senior faculty are used to doing things for the same over the last couple of decades and things like that. Maybe they're not going to be on board. They're not even going to go and attend your teaching workshop and right. things like that. Right. They were all there. They were engaged. They were engrossed. And they've now acted on it within the classroom. They're going and incorporating a bunch of these things in. And so they've been tremendous partners. Over the summer, I was also going, we have five departments within the business school, all the classic things that you have at any of the top business schools. And I was saying to the department chairs that I want us to come together over the summer, like the thing that everyone looks at academia as <laughs> the big benefit of those two months being right. off. I was saying every two weeks over the summer, I want us to come together for a couple of hours to go and work on the priorities. And they ran with the ball on a whole bunch of dimensions of putting a lot of things in place that we had in the classroom to be able to go and be able to have also a little bit of a continuous learning mindset 
continuous improvement being built into the culture there. Is, and they put in place several of the mechanisms mechanisms that we went and, and did in the fall and have now enhanced now in the spring. Is Sims a better school than it was last year? That's unfair to ask you that question. I'll let everyone else judge based on that. But You're getting a good feeling, though, right? A tremendous feeling. That you're in the right direction, that the arrow's pointing up, so to speak. Exactly. And there's a bunch of things that I saw personally as a professor that I benefited from that we've been able to go and roll out school-wide. And so when it comes to, for instance, this continuous improvement mindset, right. one of the things that we're actually doing, it started two days ago, and one of the things we debuted in the fall, is where you go and have mid-semester feedback from the students. Have the students give the faculty feedback on at least one thing that is going really well that they should double down on and make sure is going to continue as a strength, and at least one thing that over the last half of the semester they could go and improve on. And this is where the faculty sent me examples from the first semester of where it went and put things on their radar that they hadn't known. I also said to them, when you get back after the next class, when you get the feedback, go and say to the students, this is what I have heard, and this is at least one of the changes that I'm planning to go and make. That's what the faculty sent to me. What were they going saying to the students? This is what I'm going to make, where the students are able to go and see that they are becoming partners in their education. They are going and also building that continuous improvement mindset of, let me go and find at least one thing to go and improve And if over time, this is what I saw personally, my going and asking the students for mid-semester feedback, over time, it has a tremendous accumulating effect of as you get each new idea of how to go and improve over a few years, it's a radically different course, professor as a teacher, and school because of it as that all goes and adds up. And if winning breeds success, which I would guess is in one of your books somewhere, uh, if winning (laughs) breeds success, I would guess that within the next year or two, we will see... Uh, an even larger population of students who are attracted to come to Sims and be at YU. I would guess that's the end game, right, essentially? No, that's uh, that's the goal. We definitely want to go and have it be a way in which this is a terrific way that you can go and build the professional preparation and life preparation while also getting the best of the Kodesh, the right. best of the ways in which you can go and take the benefits of YU and the gem that it is in the morning and uh, uh, the Shirim and other things like that, and you can also go and get the excellent uh, secular education, and if anything, that we can go and actually do it better than the other places that I've been. Because if we can go and bring in the 24 hours of the person, if we can go and be more experiential, like when I would go and be teaching it for Harvard around the world of teaching the teachers how to teach, I couldn't go and do it for Harvard's own faculty. As much as I would try to go into it, because the right. culture there was, just like we were talking about before, right. people dive in, fail in the classroom, they go and throw the professors in as a rookie. Go and learn by going and having all sorts of rough roads that first couple of years there. No one benefits from that. The professor has a really tough time. The students don't go and learn in the same way. Over time, you're hoping that a gem of a professor is going to emerge, but a lot of people go and suffer because of that and then drop out of the system. Instead, we can go and take a disciplined approach, being able to go and teach the professors how to teach, where we hopefully over time are going to be able to go and excel beyond the places that I've been because we have that element of it in addition to all of the Toromata parts and being able to go and integrate across the full person. Dr. Noam Wasserman is here, Dean of the Sysim School of Business. We have a couple minutes left, a couple of things I need to ask you. First of all, um, a student coming to Yeshiva University, Yeshiva College, let's say they're leaving Israel, they're now coming to Yeshiva or Stern, um, can they immediately get into Sims? Like, is this is this something that starts right when they start on the campus? Yeah, no, they people can, can come right is that, in. Is that like declaring a major? Like, someone who's undecided would not go to Sims right away, or they could, or how does it work? No, it's uh, people can go. There's actually very porous boundaries. Is also one of the things that we're working on within the university to not not have it be islands of schools. Right. There's a lot of so things a lot of I'm integration, doing. and if someone would want to go in one direction, decide on another, or then end up wanting to be, you know, with, with you at Sims, they could do that. There's plenty of flexibility. Absolutely. We want the students to get the best fit 
for right. what they're going to be going and doing. And if it means they're moving across schools or one of the other things I talked to for me, how I bent and benefited undergrad by being able to do two things, being able to do dual right. the, the, the business and the engineering. It's one of the things I've been pounding the table with the students about how a powerful combination you can go and create by going and having two pillars of what you're going and building on. Those could be you major in finance and sims and you go and minor in computer science right. at Yeshiva College. And that's doable. Or vice versa. That's all. Very doable. And... Um, uh, uh, all right, so that that's, people need to know that, and I hope all the parents heard that because I think there's some misconceptions when it comes to the commitment one has to make when they get to Sims. That's number one. Also, the MBA programs, the special ones that have been described on this show, ones that, that take place on Sunday, unlike any other uh, MBA program around the United States. Obviously, for Shomer Shabbos people, it's uh, much easier. Um, it, it, it Again, back to the topic of continuing education in a real course of study is the best thing one can do for themselves, whether they lead a not-for-profit organization, whether they're in business for themselves, or whether they are part of a you know larger company, et cetera. Does that program still exist up at Sims? Yeah, no, absolutely. And if anything, we are going and scaling up a whole bunch. Um, so we can go and categorize. There's so many things we go and talk yeah. about that we've been going and working on, but we can categorize into the three buckets of life, the three stages of life. We've been talking a bunch about how we are going and strengthening the undergrad education. Right. And that also includes, in addition to the practice and the experiential and things like that, we've been going and ramping up the honors program a whole bunch so we can go and attract those students who would be going to a bunch of the other great right. schools out there and be able to go and have a real experience for them going and growing the honors course offerings by 50% alone this semester. Like when Einstein proved that you don't have to go to a medical school around the country. You could stay right here and go to a great medical school, right? Exactly. And so yeah. a bunch of those things that we're doing the undergrad to go and be able to build mm -hmm. that. A uh, bunch of things that we're doing within the grad side. So there's the strength in the undergrad. Grad is how we go and scale it. Mm -hmm. And that's where the MBA program fits into that. Um, there's also the long time, you know, the strong master's in accounting, master's in taxation. But we're also going to go and complement it with a brand new program, Yurt Hashem, in the fall of a master's in real estate. Wow. Very valuable in our community. Yes, a lot absolutely. A want to pursue it. But it's also one of those great examples of we can go and educate you in a full-time year of all the key pieces you need to know rather than being out there for a decade and flailing around. You can go and be able to do some real building of your toolkit, be able to go and excel in real estate. Also, how we go and tap the very powerful YU network within the real estate realm. Uh, we have right now a steering committee that includes three trustees who are rock stars in real estate who are helping us go and plan the program and make sure that it's tied into being able to have the great jobs the students are going to be able to go and get. They're recruiting a bunch of the Board of Governors, which is going to be a lot of the rock stars of New York real estate, to come in and be able to do guest lecturers within class, be able to go and provide possibly internships for the students, be able to go and have a lot of ways in which we're being the, bringing the best of New York City, NYU, to be able to go and have a very strong program. To go and feed into that, we introduced a minor in real estate for the undergrads uh, back in November, where they can go and be able to get a taste of it. And then be able to go, after they do a little bit of the trailer for the movie, uh, as the <laughs> undergrad minor, they can go and have the movie of the Masters in Real Estate. And where we're bringing a whole bunch of full-time faculty to it, there's a bunch of other Masters in Real Estate programs that are, essentially, they knit together a bunch of adjuncts, like a fragmented faculty. It's not their full focus or anything like that. We're bringing the best of the full-time faculty in addition to the adjuncts, in addition to the rock stars of the le guest lecturers, to be able to go and coalesce all of these ways, and the experiential side of it also. We're going to have a major capstone at the end of it where they're on an actual development. They're able to go and see a project and how it all comes together. They're going to be working on different pieces of it where all of it is going to go and coalesce in addition to the experiential in the classroom, how on that final project where they're going to have an exclamation point of a capstone to be able to go and do where they're going to have that day one job readiness when they're coming out of the program. Phenomenal. Two other quick things before we wrap up. First of all, um, you decided 
your Siyama Shas would be the night of the Yeshiva University Hanukkah concert. Correct? Uh, it was decided for me in some ways. <laughs> good point. Uh, good, the organizer, point. <laughs> uh, the organizer is Ariel Saknowitz, who's one of our star seniors at Sims. Uh, he's a pre-med who is majoring at Sims. Um, but he is the one who was the chairman of the concert. Oh, so he's minoring in Jewish music, I see. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it was his to, revelation. He, like He was looking for what can we go and do. There's right. some special stuff at the concert. And he had heard back in August that I was going to be going and finishing uh, my second round of Shas. And he said, uh, well, can you go and open the concert by going and doing your scene? That's amazing. And you must have loved sharing it with the students. It must have been a great feeling to so share it with So even someone. better was the other person I was able to go and share it with. We get to it in a second. But I said to Ariel, the big problem is that I'm going to have to go and finish Shas two weeks early. <laughs> because it was, The timing was terrible, huh? Yeah, so, but he gave me three months worth of notice that I can go and build to that. Um, the key thing for me also, so the... My father, whom you've met, who sure. you stayed at his house. Sure. Um, my father finally retired. Doctor uh, Wasserman. Exactly. The first um, Doctor Wasserman. <laughs> the real Doctor Wasserman. Well, actually, my wife is the real Doctor Wasserman in some ways. Uh, she's a doctor who actually helps people rather than <laughs> the PhD doctor who's right here. Um, but the way in which he went and looked at his next stage of life when he was retiring, the first big project that he picked up was doing Dafyomi. Wow. And so what I asked is, Abba, can you come and From open, Los Angeles. Can you come in realize, yeah. for the Hanukkah concert, and can we go and have a father-son shutfist to be able to go and partner at being able to do the Siyum? And so he did the Siyum at the Hanukkah concert on Masechus Nida, and then I stepped in and did the one across all of Shas. And then the, all sorts of ways, it was an amazing night in terms of how Ariel went and structure and his team and things like that. Nonstop energy for two and a half hours. Right. Of, uh, Benny and Mordechai going and rocking the house where... You had on the two sides in the auditorium, one side was the women, one side was the men, and you go and look at all the pictures from there. They didn't sit down the entire time. <laughs> they were going dancing away and just entire energy for two and a half so hours. So you had the most exciting CMS shots of all those that took place around the world. You had the most exciting one. This was, I'm sure that the next CM that I do, I'm still going to have Benny Friedman and Mordecai Shapiro are going to be playing. This is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to be able to go and have those coincide, be able to do it together with ABBA, be able to go and be able Phenomenal. to have that kind of thing there. And so uh, be able to go and have it be a campus-wide celebration of Torah in both the musical side and also in the in the learning side. Phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Noam Wasserman, Dean, Cy Sims School of Music. I feel like I have to ask you this before you leave. Was Cy Sims a great businessman or not? Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> I actually am right now in the middle of a video that one of our other members of the steering committee, a guy, Mike, Michael Stoller, who does... I know uh, Mike Stoller, sure. He does, a, does a show on cable access. Exactly. Yeah. And so he did a show just very recently on... Cy Sims and oh, Marcy wow. Sims. Interesting. And so I'm right in the middle of father daughter. Exactly. Right, father daughter. Uh, Marcy is still very devoted to the right. school. She's on our board oh, of really? overseers. I'm glad I, to hear that. She's been a wonderful partner at a bunch of things. She's actually supposed to come to uh, one of our honors classes with me soon. Wow. Be able to go and watch it together and things like that. And so I'm right now watching the video to be able to go and understand a lot more about that. I want us to go and be able to possibly use it to educate the students about Cy Sims and the person who was so devoted to the Jewish education that he went and put his name on the school. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about L.A., but in this area, the, the, the name Sims was, you know, in the business world, was legendary yeah. uh, for all those decades. Um, what, a, what a tremendous way to reunite. I'm so glad you were here this morning. I hope I'll have an opportunity down the road to speak more because I don't think there's anything more important than to tell potential students and parents about the programs that you are leading and the type of professors uh, that you're offering and the type of courses that are being offered by the school. I, I just think more and more people need to discover it. 
And it sounds like people are. So I know. Thank you. And thank you also for all your contributions to Klal Yisrael over the decades, <laughs> being able you. to go and bring both the Torah and the, uh, the music side of the Ruchnias to be able to go and have that. And so keep up the great work and uh, Hatzlacha Rabba with everything to you. Thank you very much. Dr. Noam Wasserman, a wonderful conversation on a Rosh Chodesh morning. He is the dean of the Sai Sim School of, of, uh, the Sai Sim School of Business at Yeshiva University. You are listening to JM in the AM. <laughs>